Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Believe Knicks podcast. We are meeting you on a lovely Saturday in June, um, episode 34. Matthew Miranda is here with Stacey Patton, who is an alcoholic environs of what just looks like paradise behind him. It's a beautiful, sunny place. He's looking very comfortable, very relieved. Um, how are you doing, Stacey? Uh, doing pretty well. Um, yeah, just only, I can't believe four days till draft, you know. It's, uh, the NBA never sleeps, so it's uh, exciting times. It's so funny. When the finals ended, there was like five minutes where I was like, okay, like I can breathe. It's done. And then I'm like, oh, sh- the draft is next week. And then yeah. free agency is right after that. Um, so, yeah. Summer right. league. Yep. Summer <laughs> league. So, and you know, there will be some off-season drama that no one has even imagined yet. So, you're right. The NBA has very much become 12 months a year, um, which I actually feel fine about because the Knicks have been – so dramatic for so long. I feel like the Knicks have been a 12-month story for years, and the rest of the NBA maybe just catching up now. So, um, yeah, and I think we're 12. We're it's 12 months for us now for more exciting reasons. Like, yeah, I mean, we we are now. I'm excited for summer league, not just because those are the young guys, but because they're really good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Deuce, I would imagine Sims will play. Don't think Obi and IQ will play, but Grimes will probably play. Whoever we draft will probably play. Um, I mean, they could win it, and if nothing else, like, also, we've seen those guys play together, and they're pretty fun, so. Uh, I can't hear you. There, you're back. My, my mic cut out for a second there. Um, so, we're going to talk some draft stuff. The draft is next. It's Thursday or Friday? It is the 22nd, so. Oh, good. It's Thursday, I think. 19, 20, 21. Yeah, Thursday. Um, so, what is usually the Super Bowl for the next season? Draft I think it's actually up. Wednesday, sorry. Oh, sooner the better. Um, draft is coming up. We'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, we want to open with a little bit of final stuff, both Knicks and non-Knicks related. Um, Stacey, let's just start initially with your impressions of the, the series. Anything that you learned or maybe had confirmed and are hoping the rest of the world has learned? Yeah, um, Steph Curry's good at basketball. Um, I think that's that's something some people weren't aware of. Um, I just think it was a fascinating contrast of styles. Um, yeah, you know, you had um, you had the homegrown um, Warriors who drafted really well, um, but are now aging. Uh, there are people. There are people who made comps to you know the 2014 Spurs, you know, kind of like a last ride type of thing for them. Um, but then you had Boston who had, um, you know, everyone they play can defend. They play nonstop for 48 minutes. They're switchable. They're versatile. Like, I think I was talking about this with Schwinn, like probably their worst defender is Jalen Brown in the starting lineup. He's yeah. pretty good. Uh, their worst player in the rotation on defense, probably Peyton Pritchard. And that's really more his size. Like, he holds up reasonably well. Um, but they didn't have, like, their half-court offense, if you can stick with them, can get a little dicey. Um, where they've been successful is kind of dominating the glass. They did that to the Warriors. Um, and then on the other hand, you had a team that 
had some, I thought, really exploitable holes. I thought Clay Thompson would struggle to hold up on defense in this yeah. series. Um, you know, they um, Draymond on offense has become, if not a complete liability, very limited. Uh, he still has the passing and ability to push, um, but he, just, he wasn't shooting. Mm-hmm. And Poole and Curry are their best offensive players, but it's tough to play them together because of Curry, I think, is underrated on defense, but Poole is not good on defense, and they're both smaller, right? So you either have to put Poole on Tatum or Steph, and uh, Steph can handle that, but that's not ideal. So I thought the matchups favored Boston, but um, but the Warriors had the best player on the floor. Um, I think the series really turned in game four. Yeah. Um, and I think the bottom line is, yeah, the, the Steph, Steph was able to do that, and not just in terms of putting up the numbers, but how he was able to stress Boston, how he's able to loosen up some of the things they love to do on defense. And on the other end, they played great defense. Um, and Tatum, um, Tatum is only 24. People are still forgetting that. Um, but I think you can both understand that this is not probably particularly close to his ceiling, uh, which is very impressive. He's already a top 10 player. But that there are limitations um, I thought that particularly in the fourth quarter of games, he, here's the thing, like you can, you know, you can say that, you know, he's in the paint. He takes, he has, he has a nice pretty fadeaway. He can hit mid range shots, but there's a difference. I think when you watch a lot of Kobe's, even extremely difficult fadeaways, it wasn't being dictated to him by the defense, right? He would get to a spot. Maybe he takes a crazy high jump and turns around and that looks insanely difficult, but he is dictating what's happening. So that works out better with Tatum. I think he was kind of letting the defense dictate that to him. I think he's got a big frame. He probably needs to use it a little bit more. Um, adopt some of the elements maybe of Kawhi Leonard's game uh, and have a better plan just once he gets into the paint. I think he'll figure it out, but I think that was a difference and it really hurt up Boston on offense because they lack a lot of creation without him. I thought Jalen Brown played well, but it wasn't enough. And then the last thing I'll say is... Um, I love this the redemption story to the extent you can you want to call it that for Andrew Wiggins, yes. who I think was clearly the second best player certainly on Golden State in this series, um, and it's, I don't think they win the series without him. Um, it's everything you you want from him, mm-hmm. um, just power. Um, you know, he his strength has been impressive all playoff long, from guarding Jaron Jackson to you know he gets pushed on the Horford. I thought he did a great job when matched up on Tatum. Uh, on offense, he was able to attack closeouts and, and get to the rim and score, uh, which is something that Draymond and, and others or, and Clay weren't quite as adept at. And against that Boston front line, that's pretty impressive. Um, and his shot selection and his process was great. I mean, no one's ever going to confuse him with Scottie Pippen or Magic Johnson. Um, certainly, <laughs> not to say those two are the same level of passer, but he's never been that great of a passer, but he, he made quick decisions. He didn't record scratch. And I think that he came out of college as this ballyhooed prospect he was supposed to be the guy uh, and it didn't pan out but he found his role and he's become a star in that role and i think that bodes well for a certain nick who we can talk about in a little bit um as kind of a developmental path before i get into a couple of my thoughts just a reminder that our partners at bet online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info find all of the latest odds news and sports development, including this year's NBA Finals. Well, I wouldn't bet on the NBA Finals anymore, but maybe you can find a good line. Finals, baseball, the latest news, 
and even next season's early NFL futures. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online where the game starts. So where I'm going to start on the finals is um, two things. I wanted to talk about Wiggins um, as I feel, and I wonder if this will change going forward. Um, I feel like Wiggins suffered in part because he was drafted with the with the expectation in mind that he's going to be like a familiar archetype. He's going to be that athletic wing who can score and kind of do it all. And what's interesting to me about Andrew Wiggins is that his, his scoring is probably the least um, remarkable part of his game. I think he's, he's better at pretty much everything else. He reminds me of Pippen in the sense that, I mean, Pippen was a better player. Like, don't get it twisted. But Pippen's, strength, P- Pippen's greatest quality was not his scoring. And, once you put, and because he always played alongside Michael Jordan, he could be a secondary threat. Um, he could let his other gifts come through. And then, and then since that wasn't, the Bulls weren't so dependent on it always, especially in his early career. And Wiggins, I feel like, you know, once he got traded to Golden State, got put in a place where they didn't need to ask him to focus on the thing that wasn't his strength, which I think is what winning teams ideally can do. And um, it's interesting when we look, we'll talk later about some of the players that the Knicks might be linked to in drafting, but, um, and obviously they're not picking number one like Minnesota did, or Cleveland, sorry, did with Wiggins, but I'm very interested in um, going forward in a league where shooting and offense seem to be, you know, all the rage now. Um, if teams at the top will ever prioritize, like if they would take someone whose top skill is not scoring. And I wonder this year if you think, um, when I see writings about Jabari Smith and Boncaro, like they both sound like these are legit, you know, legit scorers, especially Smith. Well, I guess Boncaro is too, but Chet Holmgren sounds to me like a player, obviously a different position and a completely different, you know, phys- phys- physiology than Andrew Wiggins. But it doesn't strike me that Holmgren is being brought in as someone you expect to get you to 25, 30 a game. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think I would add on on the Wiggins point. I would say there are aspects of his scoring that are the most impressive. I would say his versatility as a scorer like, he's not going to – you don't want him putting – like, he's not the guy you want to just give the ball and get out of the way. But he can do that, particularly if he gets it in an advantageous spot. You know, 10 feet and in, it's tough to guard him in the post. Uh, on drives, um, he can – like, he had a couple of just gorgeous in-the-air adjustments, those kind of finishes. Um, so he's a really good – I think he is – his most impressive strip is not primary scoring, but ancillary scoring is. And that's what those guys are. Jabari Smith is interesting because if he doesn't create a whole lot on his own, he still could be a high-level ancillary scorer. Um, there are guys, uh, you know, think of a guy like Peja Stojakovic, um, even a guy like Clay Thompson, who did put up those high-level numbers. I think Peja did average like 25 points for a season. He did, yeah. Um, so that could be Jabari's t- type of game. And, you know, I think people do say that he is still really young, so... There's, there's nothing to say that he can't develop some more off the dribble game. Chad is more, I think, in that mold that I'm describing where he's just a very efficient play finisher. Um, who, like, I think we saw this with Porzingis in New York. The one season when he really went off, his efficiency eventually tanked because he's not really a guy you want to create 
a ton of diff- a ton of shots for himself, right? And he wasn't great enough passer to, to leverage those things. I think Holmgren's a better passer, but you're probably not going to want him to isolate as much. But if you have him run around screens, if you have him roll to the rim, like again, as an ancillary piece, you there's he doesn't really have a weakness on offense. That's I think a good way to describe Wiggins. Not a great passer, but other than that, like I you know there's all of like you can't sag off him from three because he can make you pay, right? Um, you can't close out too hard because he can drive and finish against length. Um, you can't switch on him because he can punish uh, smaller defenders in the post. He's not really going to stop moving on offense and, and ball watch, um, which is perhaps one of the most impressive improvements in his game. Um, so that's where I think those guys come in. Um as it stands, I think that's an area the Knicks are pretty good at. Um, I think there's so you talked about, you know, I think it's a good point to say, you know, when he was really kind of allowed to play more of a role that fits him and find his spots. I think I saw that from Cam Reddish quite a bit when he joined the Knicks. The efficiency wasn't there; he shot the ball poorly. But you know, when we drafted, when we traded for Cam Reddish, there was these thoughts that, um, you know, he's he just wants to be an isolation player. He's record scratches the offense. I didn't really see a ton of that. I think most of his isolations came when there was like less than six or seven seconds left on the shot clock, which is always understandable. Right. Um, but I think you saw like some of the same things, right? The cutting, the opportunistic ability, the understanding that once I get the ball at the three-point line, they either have to close out hard um, or they have to, re- you know, if they close out hard, they need to rely on the fact that I can get that they can stop me from either getting all the way to the rim with help defense or I can't finish over length. I can do that. He's starting to use his strength more the way Wiggins did. Um, and um, and then he's got good touch. So I think that that's a, a good pathway for him. I think the one thing that Wiggins does a really good job of is, is leveraging that strength and realizing that, yeah, I'm a good athlete, I'm fast, but sometimes like you can you can truck dudes too, and, and Cam has that strength. Um RJ is a guy, though, I also see, and I think that, yeah, like, once once they're not relied on to, to create for themselves, like, RJ as an ancillary guy, attacking from the wings, especially attacking closeouts, and also, like, the same thing, right? He's a capable shooter. You can't, like, not close out on him. If you do, he's quick enough, and he's strong enough to get to the rim and finish with that length. Uh, that's not to say you don't want him running pick and rolls. He's more of an on-ball guy, I think, than probably you'd, you'd want Wiggins to be in terms of running picket rolls and that kind of thing. But um, but that's the other, that's the thing when you come to the draft, right? What the Knicks really need is that guy, similar to Steph, um, who like elevates the offense and allows these guys to, that's probably the most underrated thing Steph does, right? Is like, because of his ability to fill so many roles, he can play next to a guy who wants a little more on-ball usage, he can play next to guys who need stuff created for them. And he can play kind of these Schrodinger creators, right? Where they're good at, they're not really a creator, but they're not really just an off-ball guy. You want to get them in situations where they can attack downhill or, or, or do different things or attack a defense in different, multiple ways. The Knicks need that, or Knicks need someone like, that's what a lot of the stars do. Um, the stars, who, especially stars who don't you know, just dominate the ball, and I think that when you look at the draft, if you're not that guy, you need to, like, the reason Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith are, are rumored to go that high is because they will be elite at everything else. It's not that they can do these things, right? But Chet Holmgren is 7-1 and a capable three-point shooter. He's not getting blocked. He's an he's a extremely high-level finisher. I think against power five teams, he was like 83% at the rim. Something nuts. 
Uh, Jawari Smith Jr. isn't just a capable shooter. He is an elite shooter against high levels of difficulty. Uh, and he's a very good defender, and he can probably switch five positions. So if you're not that, if you're more of a role player, you can still be a really effective player. But, um, you know, then the Knicks would have to ask themselves, um, you know, do we have guys like that already? Um, and if they're going to take a guy like that who doesn't project as a creator, I would want him to have at least one kind of elite impact skill. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on that. It was impossible for me to watch uh, Jalen Brown and Andrew Wiggins and not be, like, wanting to just tear a Cam Reddish out of the box like it was Christmas Day and, like, see what he can do. Um, I, I, the Knicks haven't – I feel like they – We'll talk later about swings and misses, but I feel like they went for that a bit with Kevin Knox, and that's not Kevin Knox's reality. Um, but seeing big athletic wings um, in that series who are two-way players, it's just so hot. It's both fitting to me. And I think RJ is – I think RJ is like 6'6". Six, six. Um, so he's not quite – I think Brown feels like a big 6'8", and Wiggins is like 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, I really, I would really hope that Thibodeau and the front office have reached some kind of an understanding of what the point of Cam Reddish is. I, I was less bothered last year than a lot of people who were like, "Why isn't Cam?" It didn't really bother me initially because I felt like you know Atlanta traded him and they traded him for Kevin Knox, um, so they're not. If the team that took him is ready to give up on him, like maybe you're not getting, you know, Scotty Pippen here. But I would like to see that guy get a shot because you, you, when you watch, like you're saying in the finals, you're seeing what teams can do when you have that kind of a, like a power wing in the middle of what's going on is really like, it just seems to open up a lot of things. I liked your, I had never heard the term Schrodinger creator before, but I love it. And it brings to mind a very not Schrodinger creator that also made me think of the Knicks in the series. There's a player I love. I love Marcus Smart. I have fought with James Marcita for years that if Marcus Smart had been on the 94 Knicks, they would have won the title. Um, so I love Marcus Smart. If the Knicks picked him up tomorrow, I would throw a parade. But on the Celtics, I was struck watching all the turnovers and watching all the times that they would have Horford on Curry or Tatum on someone ball. That the Celtics didn't seem to me in late and close situations to have – here's what I'm getting at. There's a lot of talk about how like you don't need a traditional, and I don't think you like, you don't need the classic, you know, Chris Paul or whatever. Yeah, you don't need that. But especially, and the Knicks are not contending right now for a title, so I think their needs and their avenues are completely different. But I felt like the Celtics suffered a lot against Golden State because in late and close situations, not that there were that many in the series, um, but in big situations, like you're saying with Steph, like. You want to bring in Jordan Poole and have Steph play point? Fine. Like he can, he can run the offense and play that role. You want to play Steph off ball? He can do that. But you had a fulcrum that would create for other people. And I, for all the great things Marcus Smart does, um, and I think he's an, I think he's a very clutch shooter. He's like Jason Kidd in that for three quarters, I don't think he can shoot. But the last half of the fourth quarter, like I would want someone on him all the time. But it did make me think that like. Maybe not for the Knicks at this stage, but you do need at some point someone who can bring the offense, like a conductor. Not necessarily the, the Chris Paul. Chris Paul conducts at like a certain rhythm. I'm not saying they need that, but watching the Celtics made me feel like as great as Tatum is, 
and he's a fulcrum. Like you can build an altar, but you need someone there who can, I think, think on the floor. Identify. Tatum has so much going on. I don't know that he can like spot mismatches, identify them, come over and set them up. Like he can't do all of that. I think Buffalo really suffered by not having someone next to Smart who could orchestrate better and. Um, and I feel like that's getting sometimes a bit underrated with people. But I don't know. What do you think? I think that's a good point. Um, I still think it – I would say it had more to do with Tatum's shortcomings, like the reason they lost. And again, yeah, he's 24. Didn't have a great series. Had a couple of solid games. Um, there was one where I criticized him, and he finished with 27 on like 20 shots. So, um, you know, he's – He's probably is overstated, but um, he struggled to create easy looks. And I think that's the biggest thing is that um, against a team in the it, late in the playoffs in the fourth quarter, you do need that person and you need someone who can create. But there's two levels, right? There's that guy. There's guys who can create advantages consistently. So think about this, right? If Tatum isn't at that championship threshold yet, Tatum is still orders of magnitude better than anyone on the Knicks at that. It showed up in other series, right? in terms of creating advantages. To your point about someone who can orchestrate or like bring calm, I think that has some merit to it. Um, I actually think, um, and if you look back at past teams and who their point guards were, there's a certain threshold you have to hit, right? Um, like if you look at teams who won the championship with their point guard as the best player, and that player was like sub 6-5, it's really three teams. It's obviously these Warriors, um, the Pistons with Isaiah Thomas, and then I would personally say Tony Parker in 2014, but I think there's still people who would have put maybe... I thought he was really good at that time. Like Kawhi had started to emerge, so that's fair. And then if you want to say Chauncey Billups, um, for the most part, you do need someone who can stabilize things. I do think it helps to have someone who can kind of get people into their spots, um, particularly if the wing has certain limitations. Um, I still think the best teams, your the, the best bet is usually to have the ball in the hands of a wing guy in today's NBA. Um, but it can be someone who, and I think one thing that I really love from Emmanuel quickly is particularly late in the season, you could see him really conducting guys around, moving them around. That was a massive area of growth for him. Um, and I think he read the floor well. And I think that's that's something that beyond Steph, even Draymond in his age, um, he gives them a lot of, right? He's directing, tra- particularly in transition, right? Um, and so I think a point guard helps there, but it's also kind of team identity and um, and having multiple guys who see the floor, who think that the game that way. And that, I think, becomes contagious. And I watched Jordan Poole in college, and he was a crafty player, um, but the kind of passes he makes on Golden State, his relocation, all of that, like moving. Um, and he had a pretty solid college coach uh, in a good system. He has transformed in that. And I think just having a couple guys like that, regardless of position, although I think you're more likely often to find those guys at the point guard position because they have the ball so much in their hands and they have to be aware of so much, yeah. particularly from the middle of the floor. Um, that, that becomes contagious. I think the Knicks have two guys who are great at that right now. Sorry. They have one guy who is like really plays that way in my mind. And that's Obi. They have another guy who's really improving in that regard. And that's IQ. They have another guy who's shown flashes of that along with flashes of tunnel vision and RJ. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then with Randall, I just don't think that's really his forte. Uh, like he is good at creating for others, but in terms of that kind of thinking, the that's I, I don't want to call it that because I'm not like Randall does think the game, but kind of that that dynamic way things flow and attacking a defense in multiple ways and the subtle adjustments you were talking about. That's really when they lean more into Randall ball. I think that's where it kind of gets lost. Um, and um, but yeah, I think that. Um, Unless you do have a Chris Paul, it's tough to put all of that on any point guard. And I think you ideally have a couple of guys that can do that, that that kind of, yeah, it's contagious and spreads to everyone else. We're going to talk a little bit about Steph Curry and the never, never not delightful argument about his place and his legacy in the game. But just to humble myself and let people know, like, how – how stupid I can be about things. Another thing in the series that stood out to me, Nick related, was the year Tatum. I think Tatum came out in 2017, and posting the the draft prospect previews. I remember distinctly writing about Tatum. I wasn't going to spend time not only because the Knicks weren't picking that high. The next high year, rank was um, seventh or eighth, and Tatum went third. But I remember writing and thinking, like, well, even if the Knicks were picking top three, they don't need Jason Tatum because he projects to be, like, a scoring forward. And they already have Carmelo Anthony. So, like, we don't even need that. And I just want – anytime you listen to the show and you think, like, should I listen to what Miranda's saying? Like, just keep that in mind somewhere in the back of your head that I would have passed on Jason Tatum because 30-something-year-old Carmelo Anthony was still there um, and about to get traded. So – Take whatever I'm about to say with a grain of salt, but I am so tired of the Steph Curry. I, I, I'm tired of it with everybody. I, I don't understand. I don't even know where to start this discussion. I don't know why Steph winning a finals MVP does anything to change your view of him. Um, you know, Andre Iguodala had a wonderful – I'm not arguing against Iguodala in 2015, whether he should have won or not. I'm not arguing that. But why won finals MVP – in a series when he averaged like 12 and 6. But what you don't see in the numbers was he was matched up with LeBron. And this is LeBron at the height of his powers. Iguodala kind of did that also. So I'm not arguing against Iguodala. But I think if you asked 100 people today, Warrior fans, who's the best player on the 2015 Warriors in game one, game 100, it's Steph Curry. Um, Ty Lue, when he coached Cleveland against the Warriors for, I believe, the last three finals, I think David Blatt was there for the first one, um, including the two where Kevin Durant was there. And somebody asked Ty Lue about, you know, KD. And Lou said, like, we, we're still doubling Steph. We know who KD is, but we're still doubling Steph. Like, we're still trying to double Steph. I don't know how you watch. I can't imagine in 1986, if that was the first time Larry Bird won a finals MVP, I can't imagine people being like, now he's vindicated. Like, how, you know, like, he's really good at it. It's speaking of larger things, but did, did you – I loved in this series watching Steph. To me, the thing that stood out the most about Steph in the series that I, I just enjoyed so much as a fan were how many times I watched him very minor, subtle moves to get, you know, his shot off against Smart or in between maybe Smart and Horford. I think Horford would, would just blink, and that would give Steph all he needed, you know, to get the shot off. 
Um, did you learn anything on Steph Curry that you didn't already know in the series? No. Um, I mean, let's first of all, if we look back to that 2015 Finals, I think it, I think Finals MVP can be a good way to uh, recognize people who have an impact on winning. That does that goes beyond the numbers, right? Iguodala was pretty important. Um, what would you guess Steph's numbers were in that series? I would guess in 15 that Steph scored, you know, 20. I would guess he scored like 26 a game. Um, wow. Probably maybe more. Maybe 26 to 30 points. He's and, 26 on the dot, actually. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Okay, I'm going to count that. Take that. When you think too hard about my Tatum point, remember that sometimes I also do get it right. Uh, you know, 26, I'm sure he shot pretty well. Um, maybe, I don't know, seven assists a game, something like that. Um, I don't remember his numbers, but I just remember, you know, there were a lot of things in that series. That was also the series where late in this, if you remember – uh, Cleveland lost Love and Kyrie, so they started slowing everything down and going through Le- LeBron and playing this kind of grindhouse half-court offense. And I remember that um, David Lee ended up playing a big part in that series for the, the Warriors the last couple games. Um, David Lee somehow ended up being like pretty good for them, um, like pretty integral to those last few games. I didn't Once learn a Nick, it. always a Nick, right? Right, I'm saying. And he was... Yeah, much respect to David Lee. He was one of my favorite Knicks this century. Um, but yeah, I didn't learn anything about Steph. I didn't know. Right, but and and the, so that he averaged twenty six five and six. Um, yeah, that's awesome. You know, uh, did have some turnover issues, but nothing egregious. I think he averaged like um, four turnovers a game. So yeah, turnovers a little bit up. Forty four percent from the field, thirty nine percent from three, eighty nine percent from free throw line. So that comes out to 58 true, true shooting, which is below Steph's absurd standard. So like nearly every player in the playoffs, he was worse than he was in the regular season against a, a team that's locked in. And he was still really good. So like he didn't win finals MVP in 2015. Okay. He still was arguably the second best. I mean, I think that the finals MVP should have gone. I think that I watched that series. I think one thing I learned about Steph in that series is as great as he is. LeBron James at his peak was better at just just more dominant, right? Yeah, I think I saw LeBron that. LeBron should have won Finals MVP that year. What? LeBron should have won Finals MVP. Yeah, that or that he was. But I don't mind Guadal winning it. Yeah, I, I think twenty. Yeah, and then twenty sixteen is when people say he disappeared in the finals. He did have. He he only averaged twenty two and and four twenty two five and four, and forty uh, percent from the field, but still forty percent from three. So that was definitely where he did not play like a superstar. He played like a secondary star. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe if he was better, they don't win. Besides that, though, his numbers throughout the playoffs are absurd. Um, since then, he's never averaged less than twenty-four points in a series. Um, he the last two this time he averaged. Um, you know, he's he's averaged well over 30 in multiple series. Like, the fact that he got finals MVP, and there's nothing there's nothing new, right? We knew that this is a guy that can score from anywhere on the floor, on or off ball, never stops moving. I mean, what I learned also is that, like, yeah, if you can, the level of movement he has, as well as continuing to try on defense at age 33, 
you know, we hear players like Harden get excuses for like, well, he doesn't try on defense because, he, you know, he's he carries an offensive load, right? Steph's still doing that at 33. And his offensive load isn't dribbling 20 times and isolating and taking a step back. He does a million things. Um, and, um, and then all of this is without talking about the fact that, you know, we, the, the KD and Steph debate has been hashed out a million times. But A, KD, uh, Steph still produced a lot. And the amount of gravity he had, which again is also something you can't put a number on. Yep. Um, you know, people say like, oh my, like someone was trying to say, look how much Wiggins is scoring. Like he's going to take Steph's finals MVP from him if he has another good game. And it's like, yeah, if all you look at is points per game. But Wiggins, I give him a ton of credit, but Wiggins is benefiting from the fact that that defenses always have 10 eyes on Steph and he's constantly moving. And, or he's, he's driving in and Wiggins can attack a closeout. Um, or he's, you know, he's forcing switches that Wiggins can post up. Um, like, I think that it's just a, the, the, the conversation around Steph is, is pretty absurd. And I agree, like, Steph Parton had a good tweet that, like, you know, if you had, like, you know, like, Steph winning finals MVP or whatever you watch in this finals should not change your opinion. If you had him top 20 all time before this, you should probably have him there too. If you had him top 10 all time, you should probably have him there too. But, like, just responding to, to, a media award um is um you know it's it's not that um it's not that instructive and it it, it yeah i think you're right on that last thing i have about the series also somewhat nick related i did not think i would ever compare these two people in life because they're extremely different in almost every way but i i saw the spirit of pablo prigioni beloved former nick point guard in the offense of draymond green worth like draymond green has reached Pablo levels of, I don't want to shoot. It's almost like he has a bet on the over-under against himself, and he just, it was amazing watching him, the shots he would pass up. Um, I don't have a judgment of that. I don't think it means anything deeper. It was just, I, as I kept watching him, there was just a point where he made a pass that reminded me completely, like, Prigioni would be alone on a break and would be, like, looking behind him to see if, like, Shumper was there for him. Like, he did not want to shoot. And Draymond, like you said, Draymond to me, let me ask you this. I was thinking this as it was ending, right? Is Draymond to you, assuming the rest of his career progresses like fairly normally, nothing shocking, is he a Hall of Famer to you? Yeah, I think so. I think there's people who'd say no. Um, I think, one, we reward players when they have transformative impacts on the game. Um, So, yeah, I mean, since he's been drafted and since he's become this, how often do we see people compared to him at, as draft prospects, right? Yep. Find trying to find the next Draymond Green, a switchable guy, one through five, can play center at six six, also elite distribution skills that allow you to play up tempo. So when he plays center, not only do you get the advantage of him being able to switch, but when he gets the rebound, he can really, you know, he's not just a stretch five, like he's actually not a stretch five at all, but you know, he's gonna attack. Um he's a really like I think Steph is the engine that made that team go, but um, you know Green was as important to them as probably Pippen was to Jordan. Um, I'm not saying he's as good as Scottie Pippen, but he was like the things he allowed them to do. That's transformative. Um, I mean, if you look at the actual the the resume, right? Um, he has been. I mean, people talk about All NBA and on All All Stars, four time All Star. So that's like probably right on the cusp of like. The, of the Hall of Fame, 
Uh, he's made all NBA twice, third team and second team once each. Uh, four times all defensive first team, another three times all defensive second team. Um, he's led the league in steals. So his resume is high. He obviously has the championship rings. Uh, and he had a trans- transformative impact on the game. And I think that you can't, in terms of how it's played and how teams react and how they evaluate players and, and how other pe- pe- players pattern their, pattern their game. You know, Without Draymond Green, maybe we don't have a, a, a Grant Williams the same way, right? So I think to me all of that makes it um, almost, almost first ballot. And if not that, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame, though. What about you? I think he is. Um, I was thinking about him. He doesn't play the same way, but he reminds me a bit of Rodman um, in his energy and yeah. his um, deference to other people as far as scoring goes, in his ability to guard basically any position. I think Rodman was a better one-on-one defender. Um, I think Green is a great team defender, but um, but also he's a defensive orchestrator, which is rare, I feel like. He's a brilliant defensive orchestrator, and he always makes me – every time I see Draymond succeed, it just – breaks my heart a little bit that Anthony Mason is not alive and playing today because he would have been, he would have been like Draymond S, but a better ball handler. Um, but also a guy who could defend every position, a guy who could rebound, a guy who didn't look to shoot. Um, but I love Draymond. He's, he's, I've never seen a player like him. I obviously his context helps a lot. Um, but I just think he's a perfect fit. A perfect fit there, and um, I think initially I thought of. I think I initially in their runs would think of Clay maybe as being a bigger deal than Draymond, and now I think Draymond is is clearly after Steph, like the second most important player on the team, because you can't replicate what he does. Like nobody can replicate what he does, at least for them. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, good, good sir. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that the advanced stats also strongly favor Draymond's Hall of Fame case. Like at peak, he was, by a lot of advanced stats, maybe one of the top 10, 15 most impactful players in the NBA. So, so moving away from the draft, I mean, sorry, moving away from the finals and moving toward the draft, um, there's been a lot of chatter recently about how much chatter is scaring me that it's not going to happen. A lot of chatter about the Knicks, you know, prioritizing Jaden Ivey, which is understandable and nice to see. Um, but then the talk obviously turns to what would you do to move up to that spot, um, to the number four spot. And I have seen a lot of trades proposed. Some of them are nonsense. But one that I saw that I found you know, really interesting and wanted to know if you would do it, um, would you swap the 11th pick and RJ to move up to four and take Ivey? The 11th pick in RJ, I'd probably still say no. Um, but I would prefer to do that than giving up quickly. Here's why. I don't think RJ... I think between quickly and RJ, you can make a case for either being the better prospect. I'd probably still lean RJ just because there's more paths for a 6'6 wing with length. who can guard 2-4. through four. Um, Hell, he even guarded John Morant. Um and quickly has to hit a kind of a higher threshold. But I think if you pair quickly with Jaden Ivey, I think they really complement each other well. Um, both can get in the lane. They can both create advantages for each other. But quickly's movement on offense and his ability to shoot uh, and gravity 
should create a ton of opportunities for Ivy. Um, I think both are good players in transition and Quickly's ability to look ahead, find Ivy, um, or move in space for him. Uh, I think they would complement each other well in some of the ways we saw that the Warriors do, right? Um, like you put a great, an elite rim pressure guy next to Quickly. That's really what I'm hoping happens with him and RJ is RJ can improve the efficiency of the rim. And they, and I think that when they've both been on their game, you can really see how they complement each other. Um, as well as both can move off the ball well, right? That's another strength of Ivy. So quickly isn't just a guy who stands in the corner or stands waiting for, for a shot. You know, he's good at, he's shown some of the relocation stuff. Um, but I would prefer to, um, to move other picks. I would prefer to trade a guy like Rhymes. I would probably prefer to trade Obi to RJ, but even there, like, there's an argument that he's a good complement to Ivy because um, of his role ability. Um, I think with Ivy and RJ, it's a good fit, um, but still, like, neither one is a great shooter. Um, neither one has shown great consistency on defense. Um, RJ's had some great moments. I think his sophomore season, he was very good as a defender. Last year, it was very up and down. Um, but I think, yeah, like I would prefer to keep, if we could walk out of the draft with IQ, RJ and Ivy as our backcourt going forward, um, as much as it would hurt to lose Obi, there are options at the four to play there that can give you something like that, even though I really like his upside. Um, and at the end of the day, it's tougher. It's easier I think to find a four. Um, who can who can replace that for you or, or can either stretch the floor or impact the way in different ways that help the rest of your players yeah. than it is to find a guard who can do what Ivy can do and be able to pair him with with um, a really good shooter and another bigger wing who can can help with some flexibility on defense. So, Would an IQ-Ivy backcourt concern you as far as size and defense? No. Nah, I mean... Ivy's 6'4", close to 6'5", with a 6'9", wingspan. He has good two-guard size. I think IQ's a, a very good defender. I think he's going to get even stronger. Um, but he was good at the point of attack. He was good off-ball. He was a sneaky good rim protector. Great awareness. Um, and, like, Ivy is not a guy who's going to get picked on on defense in the playoffs. Um and that's, I mean, that's the fine threshold. He does need to get better. He gambles a little bit. There's some rough edges that need to be polished, but um, I didn't think his effort was bad. And um, I don't think, like, that's a back... Like, if the best a, an offense can do in the playoffs against the Knicks is hunt IQ, I think you're in reasonably good shape. Um, so. So does, does Ivy project well as a defender? He projects better than his results have been. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, one, Purdue has not had very good defenses for some time. I think Matt Painter is a good coach, but he hasn't put out good defensive teams. Um, in terms of the numbers, steal rate is 1.7 block rate of 2.0, like not great. Um, but Ivy did show the ability to, to grab and go get out in transition. He showed flashes of like big time, like either steals or blocks and highlight level plays. Um, I think he gets into trouble when he tries to gamble. There were some times when he got caught ball watching, um, but you can tell he wants to win. Um, I think effort, effort with that level of athleticism and wingspan, um, you can teach him enough on defense to, to, to be a really good player. So um, I'm not too concerned. Is he going to be some lockdown guy in the mold of D Wade? I don't know about that. Um, 
but I think he can be like he can be similar to something like Jalen Brown on defense, where you know because of his strength, he's extremely strong too. By the way, uh, he can probably switch a little bit. Uh, he's not going to get hunted, and uh, on ball, he'll probably have some some really impressive moments locking dudes up. So a couple other draft people, um, assuming the Knicks do not trade up. Oh, is it remarkable to you? It is to me when the Knicks. At the end of Obi's first season, I would have, you know, been fine trading him for a, a mid-round first, whatever, because Randall was there and Randall was great and Obi was superfluous and whatever. And to now be at a point where I'm like, it would really hurt to give up Obi Toppin with Randall still there for the number four pick in the draft is just, to me, such a, an indicator of like how much Obi has risen in the eyes of fans just by doing everything that he can when he gets the opportunity. Like, I don't know what to make of Obi now off those that. You don't want to put too much on, like, a handful of games at the end of the year, but it's remarkable to me how far he has ascended in the eyes of fans, and with reason. You know, really, with, with when I think about trading him for that pick, it does hurt. If you could trade Obi, Obi and Grimes and, and 11 to get Ivy, would you do that? I would. I mean, I still think you'd need to give up more. And part of the problematic thing is, I don't think even 11 and RJ is enough for, for Sacramento. Like, they probably want future firsts anyway. Yeah. Um, but if I had to give up Obi and Grimes, I would do that. But it would, yeah, it would hurt a lot. Um, and that's where I'm starting to think, okay, now I'm talking myself into replacing this athletic four, who, by the way, I think his impact is a little understated. Because you think about it, and that archetype, role man four who can shoot a little um and run and finish in transition that seems very common but if you watch him play like he he does a little bit of what draymond does not in terms of the ball handling but in he greases the gears of the offense in the half court right he like he 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 really can see the game at a high level makes great passes manipulates defenders and uses you know if they're running a dho um you know he he can he can threaten every single part of that dho right he's not predictable uh and he can also adapt based on what the defense is showing him. Um, so it would really hurt. And then you're talking, like, Grimes, is it easier to replace a 3 and D wing who can switch 1 to 3, maybe 1 through 4, than it is to replace a guy like RJ or IQ? Yeah, I think it's a little easier. But now you're talking about, I mean, his ceiling is pretty, like, those are guys who are pieces where you're saying, like, if and when we get the guy, these guys complement him extremely well. And then now, if you're back to IQ, RJ, IV, is it Randall or you know, or, you know, are your bench guys Fournier and Burks? Um, are we going to be able to play the same style and the, the the kind of identity that the Knicks kids started to build at the end of that year? You know, is that going to be an adjustment period with Ivy? Are you going to have to bring in other vets who may not fit that as well? Um, because Grimes, I see as a guy who, you know, if he hits, could, is the kind of guy who can get paid more than $20 million a year. Those guys aren't easy to find. Uh, you look at a guy like Norm Powell, that's how much he got. You look at a guy like Fournier got close to $20 million, right? We can argue if that's an overpay, but Buddy Heald is a much more limited defender than Grimes. Obviously one of the best shooters in the NBA. He got $23 million. Um, and maybe, maybe there's some inflation there and those will come down a little bit as the league evolves. Um, but it would hurt to lose both those guys. And I think... As much as the Knicks need to consolidate, um, part of the, the strength of that youth movement is how diverse the skill sets are and how well they complement each other. And, and losing that would hurt a little bit. Ivy feels like he'd be great as the final piece to that. 
But the more and more of these guys we have to get rid of, the you know the, the more dicey it gets. It very much reminds me when I play and you get to the end of you get near the end of the game, and if you you know that like if you just if you could skip the opponent one turn, like you would, you would win, you would totally win. You have everything set up to win, but of course you can't skip that turn. That's what makes it complicated. And it's nice to have the Knicks in a position. It's bittersweet to have the Knicks in a position where. We're talking about this kind of move, and all the young players we're talking about moving would hurt to lose, which I think speaks well to them. Um, but it is, you know, it is. I do like the young core so much, and I think that I really like your point about they're complementary. The Knicks have had issues in the past, particularly with free agency and, and trades, of making their best players redundant or having redundant skill sets that don't complement. But this front office has done a great job. Of getting diverse talents all over the place who fit together. Um, I have a couple of minutes left, so along those lines, we, we may not hear. Um, I don't know if we'll, we'll talk again before the draft. Hopefully, we will. But at this point, if you had to guess, who do you think? Assuming the Knicks hold at eleven, um, do you have any sense of who you think they're most likely to take? Yeah, I mean, Vegas' favorite right now is Malachi Branham with. Johnny Davis, very close second. Um, it would not surprise me if either of those guys was the pick. Um, they've worked out both of them. Uh, both would add some of what they need in terms of guys who can score at three levels. Um, in Davis's case, what he has that's a big advantage um, is the fact that um, he's, um, uh, you know, he's also fits that mentality. Like, I would be shocked if Tibbs didn't absolutely love Johnny Davis. Um, his defensive well, motor is very high, but also he has this flexibility to get around screens as well as strength. Like, he has the, the, the ceiling there on defense as a perimeter defender is extremely high. Uh, maybe something like a guy like Marcus Smart. Um, and he adds a pretty high-level offensive ceiling. Um, that would probably be my pick. But Branham has more length um, and you know, shot a better percentage from three on limited attempts um, and was hyper-efficient in pick-and-roll, uh, even more so than Johnny. Now, he had slightly better talent around him. He, I mean, he had one huge piece in E.J. Liddell, um, but he is one of the youngest players in the draft. Another factor is would the Knicks take a guy who's – they haven't taken too many 18, 19 year olds. Uh, Branham just turned 19. Um, you know, they've seemed to like sophomores or guys who are, uh, you know, have at least a year or two experience or a couple years experience. Maybe that plays into the factor. So I think Davis and Branham are pretty likely. Um, and then the other guy I'll mention that's a bit of a wild card is AJ Griffin, who is, yeah. um, <laughs> we haven't talked about much because he's been mocked. You know, as high as top five for most of the year, was an elite prospect, um, historically good shooting prospect, or at least in terms of the production. Uh, didn't have a ton of usage at Duke, which it's fair to ask is that because they had Paolo, they had all these other guys, some of them with more experience, um, and Griffin was working himself back from an injury. How much of it is because he's limited as a creator? Um, but, I mean, he fits a lot. He's from White Plains, Dad was an NBA player, um, you know, off-court, work ethic, all of that he's spoken about very highly. And I understand they say that a lot about a lot of prospects, but you can tell when it's kind of really emphasized even more so. 
mm-hmm. um, and he has that professional demeanor. You know, his interviews, he seemed to be very confident. Uh, and he's got great length and tools. Uh, the defense wasn't great. Um, and that's where it comes a little bit down to. Um, in high school, he was a more explosive player. Uh, he used to do a lot more self-creation. Um, he had some knee injuries that he was working back from. Um, and now he's falling. And so I have no idea how the Knicks medical staff is going to evaluate that. Um, there's one with the idea that is he ever going to be quick enough to be really solid on defense or passable? Um, and the other more concerning thing is, is this just going to be a chronic injury that's, that's going to have destructive impact on his career? And I, I mean, I'm not a doctor. Um, the only thing... The only recent example I can remember where somebody fell like that and the Knicks had a chance to pick him was Michael Porter Jr. Um, I think there were some off-the-court concerns. Porter, I think, famously didn't work out for anyone besides, like, Chicago or something. Or he he wanted he did not want to, um, you know, he didn't work out for teams. He didn't share his medicals with all his teams. There's, like, the Jehovah's Witness and the, the vaccine stuff that's happened. Um, those things are not concerns for Griffin. But that said, you know, if there's medical issues in the knees, that's not something you can skate over. So, so we'll talk more about. It. I think we'll have an episode before. Um, we'll try to have another episode before the pod, um, maybe to get more into Griffin and some of these other people. Um, and we have a, a we'll have a special guest the week after that. So stay tuned, pay attention, um, look out for us on Twitter. We have a site, a Twitter site. I believe Dicks. Um, subscribe. There's a lot of fun polls there that you can take part in. Um, that's it for today's episode. Basically, as always, knowledge. Um, we will see everybody either right before the draft or soon after. So take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.